Good morning. Well, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father God, now as we turn from our time of expressing our love and our adoration, our thanksgiving and our appreciation for who you are and your interaction with us through song and the fellowship that we've enjoyed here this morning, now we turn our attention to hearing from you and we invite your Holy Spirit who inspired the writing of these words to now enlighten our hearts and our minds, our spirits with these truths. We are over and over again as we're going through the study of Romans, we are confronted with doctrine that challenges uh, our comfort zone. And again, God, uh, we appeal to your word as truth, and we stand on that in spite of what others are saying, what people are teaching, what our culture is telling us. We stand on your word. And so now speak to us through your word, by your Holy Spirit, and we will give careful attention to you now. In Jesus' name. Amen. In June of 1972, police arrested five burglars outside an a office building and hotel complex in Washington, D.C. What was curious about these five burglars was they weren't actually trying to steal anything. They were trying to put listening devices into the Democratic headquarters in the Watergate Hotel. It quickly became apparent that these five burglars had close contacts and close relation with President Richard Nixon at the time. One of these guys had a $25,000 check that, which had been written to him from Nixon's campaign fund. So it, uh, was, it was a little uh, questionable. In October, the FBI started to investigate this break-ins, and they discovered that this was actually part of a massive campaign of political spying and espionage on behalf, on behalf of President Richard Nixon, who somehow, in spite of this information being leaked out, managed to win the election by a landslide in uh, 1973. The congressional investigators found out that uh, Nixon was involved and began checking in on him, and uh, they dug in their heels. Nixon fired the, uh, Archibald Cox, the uh, special prosecutor, in an effort to appear like that they were cleaning house in the process. Eventually, though, Nixon was asked to turn over some crucial tapes that were um, from the White House, and they didn't want to release them. Finally, they released them, and there was this missing gap of 18 and a half minutes in the tapes. Um, um, at this point, even with his protests of, I am not a crook, nobody believed him by that time. And so when the uh, House of Representatives passed articles of impeachment three different times against him, he finally, uh, he finally quit. His successor, uh, Gerald Ford, uh, quickly pardoned him to make sure that Richard Nixon would not be the first U.S. president to go to prison. You know, a cover-up is an attempt, whether it's successful or not, it's an attempt to conceal evidence of wrongdoing or of incompetence or, or some embarrassing information. There's, you can have a passive cover-up where you simply don't release the information, or you can have an active cover-up where you're actually passing on disinformation. You're, you're trying to create deception. But there's a third kind, and I want to tell you about that a little later in this message. When a scandal breaks out, um, when we discover that there is a cover-up, we find that uh, totally reprehensible. But sometimes the cover-up itself appears worse than the actual deeds. I mean, 
Obviously, there are successful cover-ups, only we don't know that because they were successful, right? There's no evidence of a successful cover-up. But uh, there are some cover-ups that have become rather scandalous, like this one, the Watergate scandal was a cover-up, and the Iran-Contra affair cover-up, and the uh, Malai massacre in, in Vietnam. And then, of course, there are suspected cover-ups. You know, you can't actually prove them, like what happened to the U.S. diplomatic mission in Benghazi. You know, it's interesting cover-up, or whether or not Jeffrey Epson really did commit suicide, and there are other people close to the Clintons who also were interesting, interestingly enough, suicided. <laughs> those are, those are, uh, those are alleged cover-ups. But like I said, sometimes the the cover-up is much worse than the outright uh, crime. And in case in point, the Watergate cover-up started out as a third-rate burglary and ends up being the biggest scandal, the biggest cover-up in the judicial. Uh, presidential judicial history up until that point. But what happens from a third-rate scandal is pretty soon you have obstruction of justice, you have perjury, payoffs and bribes, suspected suicides, uh, suspected murders. And so the saying gave, came up that it's not the crime, it's the cover-up. So cover-ups anger us. You know, we want justice done. We want criminal activity exposed. We want criminals judged, we want them punished. We're just indignant at the deception and uh, we, we demand justice. Now, like I said, there's three kinds of cover-ups. Two of them are diabolical, one of them is divine. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn with me where we left off last week in Romans. We're going to Romans chapter two, verse one. Now remember, Paul begins by greeting the, the Christians in Rome he tells them about his desire that they'd be able to get together for the purpose of mutual encouragement. He emphasizes that righteousness is by faith to everyone who believes. Um, he says there's no excuse for people not to believe because one, God has made himself evident in their heart and God has displayed himself in creation, so there's no excuse for anyone to, to not believe. Um, but in fact, many people reject the truth and the consequence of that rejection of truth has been that God gives them over to immoral sexual behavior. And what he describes further back in Romans 1.29 starts to make us squirm and make us uncomfortable because after he's described those of immoral sexual behavior, he says they're filled with all kinds of manner of, of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, and malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, they're gossips, slanderers, hate of, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And so we're starting to squirm because he's getting too close to home. We can distance ourselves from those immoral sexual behaviors, but he's starting to make the circle closer and closer to our heart. But he's not finished yet. Now the indictment starts to get even closer because he's... He's just continuing with this oppressive comparison of how we are not meeting up to the, the, the law, the character of the law. And, and we want to know, you know, shouldn't he by now start to give us a little glimmer of relief? Shouldn't there just be a little hope brought into it? It just gets darker and darker and darker. And the answer is, not yet. It gets darker even yet. In fact, we're not even going to start talking about the... Uh, 
justification by faith alone until we get to chapter 3. In the meantime, um, it, he's just continuing to, to batter us with our, our own darkness and our need for, for the gospel. And so he continues this relentless, relentless indictment of our sinfulness now in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you'll escape the judgment of God? So, Romans chapter 2 is now drawing this circle around another group. He's indicting another group of people um, who also need to be convicted of their sins and need to come to repentance and believe in Jesus Christ. Here he's now talking not about those dirt bags who fall into that category of those very obvious immoral sins. Now he's addressing this new group of people who are... Uh, they would approve of morality. They, they would recognize the immorality in their culture, and they would condemn that. And they're not the kind of man that lives in the gutter, desperately unrighteous. These are people who are very moral, who would very much approve of all that Paul has said up to this minute. He's speaking to educated people, the, the middle class. He's talking to Americans in the Bible Belt, to the Make America Great Again group to the Save America group. Uh, he's addressing the Stoics of his own day who were very moral people. In fact, Seneca, one of the founders of Stoicism, was a contemporary of Paul, born about 4 B.C., as was Paul. And so this Stoic, this very much unbeliever in Christianity, would have happily agreed with Paul about all the immorality in Rome and in Greece at the time, and he would have said, I absolutely agree with these with you when you criticize these, these immoral people, they're, they're totally uh, degenerate. And so now Paul has finished talking about this group in Romans 1, and now he's changed in Romans 2 to talking about people like us, very moral, upright people, people with high standards, um, people who think morals are important, and they're, they're horrified when they see this degenerate activity in their community. And nevertheless, though um, they clearly see the sinfulness in the community around them and other people, they have not yet come to grips with their own sin, and they desperately also need a Savior. Until they realize that that situation, they're in the same fundamental predicament as the immoral people are, and that is that they are lost and apart without Christ. They're still living in rebellion against God with, with, without hope. So now, Paul says to this new group of people something like, uh, and now for you more respectable kind of people. You see, he's an equal opportunity critic. He's happy to criticize everybody. So he's turning the target around now on the respectable people. Nice, outwardly moral, and he says, you too are under God's condemnation. So he's contrasting the bad pagan with the good pagan. The bad pagan is immoral, but he knows that he's immoral. He's, he's openly immoral. The, the good pagan is a moral person. He recognizes the immorality in the bad pagan, um, but 
still he's, he's under the condemnation of God. So the, the, the bad pagan who's openly immoral, he knows right from wrong. He knows that God is going to judge the wrong, but yet he chooses to do the wrong because he wants to do the wrong. And Paul says even more than that, not only do you choose to do wrong and want to do wrong, you encourage other people to do the wrong you know is wrong. That's where we were last week. And now he's talking to this good pagan, and he says that uh, even though you are moral people and you know right from wrong and you condemn immorality in other people, you acknowledge that there's a standard of right and wrong, but do you practice the very same things? Or does that make you a hypocrite? You're doing the same thing that the immoral people, the ones you condemn, are doing and yet you're doing them yourselves, even though you're condemning that. Now, let's be honest, you moral people that Paul is talking about. You don't commit adultery, and so you could, you, know, you could click your tongue and cross your arms at those and say, you immoral people who commit adultery. Well, what does Jesus say about that? Okay, you haven't committed the crime of adultery, but you lust. And in the process of lusting, you show that you are willing to commit the same crime. You just haven't been given the same opportunity to. You haven't been given the right bait yet. You're willing to, you, you're enticed by it, um, but, you, but you haven't done it yet. Or you who criticize the person who commits murder, and you say, well, that's a terrible, immoral person that commits murder. Yes, but you hate. And in the process of hating, you wouldn't be terribly upset if that person who offended you woke up dead tomorrow morning, right? And so the difference is really a matter of degree, not of kind. You haven't been given the opportunity, you haven't carried it out as far, but you're just as willing. It's only a matter of degree. And so Paul begins to probe one of these questions that he has about us assuming that we were going to to ascend to the right of being that person's judge, that we would judge other people when we ourselves are guilty. Well, let's pause here just for a moment. Are there occasions when we ought to judge? You know, you're very familiar with Jesus saying, judge not that you be not judged. Are there occasions when we should judge? Is it an occasion where judging is appropriate? Well, in a sense, we judge all the time, even ourselves, when we call a sin a sin, when we make a distinction that something is good or bad, right or wrong, uh, approved or not. We're making a distinction. That's, that's a, a process of, of judging. We, we, we make distinction of, of sins. And so there's another sense in which we recognize sin is sin because the Bible calls it sin, and we recognize that somebody else's behavior is sinful. We are, in that sense, we are judging some. Some, someone else. But what does Jesus say when he says, judge not that you be not judged? That's Matthew 7, 1 or 2, somewhere in there. What does he say? Judge not that you be not judged. In that, the same manner, the, the standard, the measure that you use will be used against you. Well, if we're willing to make those distinctions between right and wrong, sin and not, and we're willing to have the same standard used against us, the same measure, um, that's, a, that's an appropriate judgment or distinction. What he's talking about here is when we judge and condemn somebody else's 
sin, and we condemn them as being immoral. We, say, we condemn them as saying, I'm a good person, you're a dirtbag. That's the kind of judging that, that we are supposed to uh, avoid. Now, here in Romans chapter 2, verse 1, Paul is warning us of pretending to be like God, pretending to make judgments based on the information that only God would have. And unlike God, we are sinners to start with. Unlike God, we don't see the whole picture. When we see somebody else sin, we don't know what we would have done in that same situation. We don't know how hard that person tried to resist that sin. And we don't know what it was like to be in the, 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 the circumstances that they were in. So when we judge them from that point of view, the point of view of a sinner and not from the perfect point of view of God, we are committing hypocrisy. Of course, there's different kinds of hypocrisy. You know, there's diverting hypocrisy. That means you, you recognize there's wrong on you, but you divert attention to somebody else's wrong. Remember when Jesus was with the Pharisees? He says, woe to you Pharisees. I mean, you love to, to tithe the smallest garden herb, your mint, dill, and cumin, while ignoring the weightier matters of the law. So here's these Pharisees diverting attention from the fact that they are far worse sinners, but they want to point out somebody else's sin. They want to point out the little speck in somebody's eye, ignoring the fact that there's a, a big log in their own. So in, there's, there's diverting hypocrisy, and there's corresponding hypocrisy, and that's the kind of what we're talking about here, that you, you also are, are guilty of the very same thing, maybe not to the same degree, but the same type that you um, condemn in other people. Of course, an example of that we see when, a, when there's a congressional hearing and the, the, the professional politicians are there condemning another professional politician because he, he's guilty of perjury. Uh, really? Well, there's a surprise. Or they're condemning another politician because of, of, of taking bribes or, or immorality or embezzlement or, you know, whatever. The, and we realize... Who are you to sit in judgment when you do the exact same thing? See, that's, that's, the, that's the corresponding hypocrisy. And so Paul is saying to his respectable friends, his upright church-going friends, he's saying, until you recognize your own guilt and that that guilt deserves condemnation to hell, you are really no better than they are. And apart from the grace of Christ Jesus, your future is no different from theirs. Again, it may be different in specifics, but it's the same in particulars. Therefore, you are without excuse. But God's judgment is not like that, verse 2. He's, God's judgment is always according to the truth. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Um, God's judgment is in accordance with truth. Um, it's in accordance with the facts. It's done impartially. Um, he doesn't play favorites. Uh, he punishes crime, and the punishment that he gets fits the crime. His judgment is always correct. And every time we see in Scripture where um, we see the judgment of, of God and people coming into the presence of God sitting in judgment, the, the answer or the, the situation in that case is always that the person being accused sits or stands in silence because they realize there is no defense. You're not going to correct the judge. He has perfect information. 
There's no, there's no point. It's, it's futile to debate the question so that when God renders a, a verdict, we know that His, his judgment is according to truth. In verse 3, uh, do you think this, O man, that you who judge those, pra those practicing such things and doing the same that you'll escape the judgment of God? So here's the deepest hope that is harbored in the heart of corrupt humanity, and it is that somehow when they stand before the judgment of God, and remember they have this awareness that they will. God has placed that awareness in him. They hope that when that happens, when they stand before God, somehow God is going to make an allowance for them. There's going to be some escape clause, some loophole. Uh, w, when W.C. Fields was uh, dying in the hospital, one of his friends came over to visit him and found him reading a Bible and thought that was a little funny because W.C. Fields was not a religious man. And his friends asked him what he was doing, why he was reading the Bible, and Fields replied, I'm looking for loopholes. See, everyone thinks when it comes to them, there's going to be a loophole. There's going to be a way of escape, of somehow dodging the omniscient, holy, righteous God. But the reality is there, there's no escape from his judgment except through the cross. And the, the unbeliever doesn't want it that way. He wants to find an escape, yet there is none. Verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So Paul points out to us three things here, um, that God is towards all people. He's kind, forbearing, and patient. And not just the kindness, but all three of these characteristics are meant to show us that these uh, aspects, these characteristics of God are meant to lead us to repentance. And so if we do not repent at the awareness of the, these things, we are, we are not apprehending who God is and what, what God is. So first of all, Paul says that God is kind. And when we speak of his kindness, we're talking about his goodness, his generosity, his, 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 his beneficial action towards people. It's, it's true that God is kind to all, that he's, he is in general kind. But again, the point of his kindness, we're told, is to lead us to repentance. And secondly, we are told about God's tolerance or his forbearance. Now, in this instance, God's tolerance or forbearance, they're talking about um, God restraining himself from final judgment. He's, he's, he's tolerant of our sins. He's, he's, he's bearing them um, even though we deserve them. He's, he's holding back to give us the opportunity to repent before he brings um, absolute justice upon us. By the way, when we talk about God's tolerance, it is way different than the tolerance that is spoken of in, in our society, in our culture today. Um, in our society, you're intolerant if you think that you're right and somebody else is wrong. You're intolerant if you think that uh, if you're intolerant if you don't say that everybody's right, even though by definition everybody can't be right. But you're intolerant if you don't say everybody's right. You're intolerant if you condemn anybody else's behavior. Um, 
But that's not what we're talking about here, about God's tolerance. We're talking about God holding back his judgment uh, when it's deserved. And so it's very much like the next thing when he talks about his patience. That's the third one. He's patient in that he's long-suffering. He continues to put up with us. He continues to hold off his judgment. All of these are meant to lead us to repentance. They're, they're not to be used as an excuse, as we typically do, for behaving indifferently to God or to God's demands or to his, his, uh, his uh, uh, offer of salvation, his, his requirement that, that we uh, obey him and do what he tells us to do. So uh, it's unfortunate I, that even Christians do that. We take God's kindness, his patience, and his uh, forbearance, and we, we think, well, you know, it's God's business to forgive. You know, God has to. That's who he is. He's got to forgive, so I'm just going to live my life as I want to. So that's really mocking God to do that. Um, the psalmist Rejoice that the earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord, Psalm 33, 5. That the loving kindness of God endures all day long, Psalms 52, 1. That he gives his wonders to the sons of man, Psalms 107. The Lord is good and does good, Psalms 119, 68. That the Lord is good to all and his mercies are over all his works, Psalms 145. Strangely, although we have all these scriptures that talk about the goodness of God, most people don't think that God is even mostly good. I mean, you know that's a definition of God, but we, we don't perceive God as being good. Um, instead of recognizing that God provides for us, that, he, that he's patient, that he's merciful, that, he, that he's loving, we accuse God, rather, of being insensitive and unloving. And uh, we, we challenge God. We judge God. God, if you are good, then, then why do you let this little child die? If you are good, then why does this nice person have bad things happen to them in, in their life? Why do good people suffer from, from pain and deprivation and poor health while you permit some scoundrel to enjoy the, the wealth of life and the comforts of life, how is that just and good of God? In the process of doing that, however, we have reversed our roles. Instead of an omniscient, holy, a, a God who knows all things and is perfectly holy, sitting in judgment over a sinful man, we have the sinner, man, judging God by our standards, and we say to God, you are not good because you don't do things the way I think you should do them. From our limited perspective, we judge God. And all the while, we we're failing to acknowledge that if it weren't for God's goodness and his gracious and his patience, no human being would still be alive today. It's only his grace that allows us to even take another breath. So rather than asking, why does God let good things, bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people, we ought to be asking, why does God not strike down every Christian like he did Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5 um, for, for our gross immoralities and our sins? We, we should be wondering 
Why doesn't God cause the earth to open up and swallow heretics within Christianity like he did the rebellious followers of Korah in November, Numbers 16 and 25? And the reason, if we're jumping way ahead to Romans chapter 9, 23, is that God endures with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he has prepared for his own glory. That's why. And the purpose of God's kindness is not to excuse men of their sin. It is rather to convict them of their sin and lead them to repentance. And yet even Christians, we become so terribly offended when God, God is not as generous and giving as we think he should be. And we're scandalized by any suggestion that we, as Christians, might even suffer from God's discipline because we only allow God to bless us and give us good things. And Romans 1 is declaring God's wrath on the basis of the evidence of that God shows himself in, in, in nature. He makes himself aware in, in, in every person's heart. Now we get to chapter 2 and Verse 5 is particularly uncomfort, discomforting. I'm going with discomforting on that one. In that uh, God's wrath is also made evident to those who stubbornly refuse to repent. And apparently, kindness and tolerance and patience have no effect on men and women, leading them to repentance, even those who are suppressing the truth about God what they know from nature, we continue to harden our hearts to his kindness. Um, and so God's wrath falls on the race for two, two counts. One, because we have rejected this natural revelation. And now two, that we have shown contempt for God's patience and kind acts. Jim Boyce says, in my judgment, the most important teaching in this verse is that the wrath of God is proportionate to human sin in the sense that those who sin much will be punished much, and those who sin less will be punished less. This has been a problem for some Christian people who have thought of hell's punishment as being poured out on unbelievers because of their adamant refusal to accept Jesus Christ. Since that sin is a great sin to be sure, seems to be the same for everybody, the punishment of hell should be equal. Such persons feel... But this is not correct. For one thing, even the basic premise is in error, for not everyone has the chance to hear of Jesus Christ, and therefore not all will be punished for refusing to believe on him. Remember in our study last week, we talked about, uh, is it just for God to condemn those who uh, have never heard of the gospel? Is it just for God to condemn the native who lives in some distant tropical jungle? Is it, is it right for God to judge him when he's never really had the chance to even hear the gospel? And we saw that God does not condemn people for failing to do what they do not know they should do. He condemns them for failing to live up to the revelation that they do have. And so the native is not condemned because he doesn't believe in Jesus Christ about whom he has never heard. Uh, he's condemned for failing to seek out God based on the revelation that God has already made for him. Now, if that's true, and it is, it follows that some people are more guilty than other people, and they are punished accordingly. And the native 
who's never heard of Jesus Christ is perhaps the least guilty because he's never heard of nor rejected Christ. And we would condemn that uh, native, as we would say, he's grossly immoral. His worship is, is, he, is debased. He, he's following these idols. And we would say, now that's an example of a really bad person. And Paul is saying, no, you want to see an example of a really bad person? It's the person who knows the truth and he's heard of Jesus Christ and he knows what God requires and in spite of all of that, he chooses to reject it. So that person then is more guilty before God than that native with the immoral behavior and the debased debauchery and idolatry. Verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works to those who by patience and well-doing seek for the glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are seeking and who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Buckle up your seatbelt. Here's the truth. You're okay with the idea that hell is not the same for everyone, but God judges appropriately, and that there is worse punishment for worse sinners. But the truth is, and we'll see this in a moment, that all of us, sinner and saint, unredeemed and redeemed, must stand before the judgment seat of God. The believer passes from condemnation. He's not condemned in the judgment, but he still has to stand and be judged. R.C. Sproul wrote, some people think if you go to hell, you go to hell. What's the difference? A professor of mine once said that the sinner in hell would give everything he owned to do and do anything he could to make one less number of his sins during his lifetime because he'll be judged according to his deeds. There are various degrees of punishment in hell because hell is where God manifests his perfect justice and punishment always fits the crime. If someone commits 30 sins, he's going to be punished 30 ways. As long as our hearts remain hardened, we add to the indictment, indictment moment by moment. What I'm saying is there are varying degrees of punishment in hell. There are varying degrees of reward in heaven. It's not the same for everybody that goes to hell. It's not the same for everybody that goes to heaven. God's judgment is rendered first according to truth, and second, it's rendered according to righteousness. God will render to each one according to his deeds, verse 6. Now let me pause to reiterate, if you know me, that I'm really big on this, that our justification is by faith alone by grace alone, but our rewards in heaven will be distributed according to our works. And that's why the Lord told his followers who are justified by faith alone, treasure up things in heaven, Matthew 6.20. Augustine said, in distributing rewards according to our levels of obedience, God is crowning his own works in us. On the day of judgment, we will be judged according to our works. God will subject our lives to this closest scrutiny. In Revelation chapter 20, we are twice told that we will be judged according to our deeds. Um, the same Paul emphasized that in 
in the passage that we're looking at, Romans chapter 2, declaring plainly that God is going to render for every man according to his deeds. The judgment by deeds or works, of course, is very clearly taught in the Old Testament. The Lord instructed Isaiah, say to the righteous that it, that it will go well with them, for they will eat the fruit of their actions. Woe to the wicked, it will be, go badly for them, for what he deserves will be done to him. Isaiah 3.10, um, through Jeremiah, God spoke, I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind, even to give each one according to his ways, according to the result of his deeds. Jesus reiterates uh, in that principle of judgment, he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will recompense every man according to his deeds, Matthew 16, 27. On another occasion, Jesus said, Don't marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who hear in the tomb shall hear his voice and shall come forth those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment, John 5, 28. Um, Paul, the great apostle of salvation by grace alone through faith alone, consistently taught that there will be a judgment of believers as well as unbelievers, and that judgment is based on works. First Corinthians 3.8, he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his reward according to his own labor. First Corinthians 3.11, no man can lay a foundation other than the one that's which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if a man builds upon that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, good deeds, or wood, hay, straw, pointless things that we do for ourselves, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it's to be revealed with fire. That's the fire of judgment. <coughs> and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work, which he has built up, remains, he'll receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved yet as through a fire. Again, Paul is talking to believers when he writes, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body <clears throat> according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And even in Galatians, this great epistle of, of grace, Paul writes, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let's not grow weary and lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. So God is not going to judge us based on our religious profession or because we went to the right church or our religious relationships or or our religious heritage. God's got different standard by which even Christians must stand before the judgment seat. Again, the subjective criteria for salvation is faith alone. But the objective reality of salvation is that it's manifested, um, is that, I lost my train of thought, the objective reality of, of salvation is manifested in the subsequent godly works that we perform. And the Holy Spirit empowers us to do. And it's for that reason that deeds now become very appropriate, a perfectly valid basis for God's judgment. Again, both the Old Testament and the New Testament teach that judgment is by works. But never does it teach that salvation is by works. 
Salvation is not by works, but salvation produces good works. The presence of genuinely good deeds in a person's life is evidence of the Holy Spirit at work, enabling them to do works that God approves of, deeds that become a trustworthy basis for God's justice. And so we see God manifesting within us good works which become the basis of rewards, not salvation. We're talking strictly about rewards. And so here in Romans chapter 2, um, Paul's talking about the basis, uh, he's, he's talking about the basis of, of, of judgment, not the basis of salvation. But he does not begin discussing salvation until we get to chapter 3. So we're shooting a little far ahead. But the present passage here, he's talking about deeds, works, things that we do being the basis of God's judgment, both for the unregenerate, the unsaved, but also being the basis of judgment for those who are saved. Not the means of salvation or the basis of it, but we're talking about the evidences of salvation. Again, I don't want anyone to think that I'm substituting good works for faith as a mean of salvation. It's, I'm, I'm not. If, if good works are even added to faith, not even to mention substituted for faith as a ground of salvation, that becomes a false gospel. And a person who says you have to do works in order to be saved would fall under that anathema, that condemnation that Paul gives at the beginning of Galatians chapter 1, verse 8-ish. Salvation is achieved by, by Christ, and all who are saved are saved by His grace alone. Um, our salvation becomes ours through simple faith. It is based on works, but in this case, salvation is based on somebody else's works, Jesus' works, which you are appropriating um, by faith. But let's not mock God and say we can just live like we want to because we don't have to stand and give an account for ourselves. The wonder of the Christian gospel is that it is utterly by grace and received through faith and that even that faith is not our own, it is a gift, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And no one can possibly be saved by his works because God has designed that we would have no reason to boast or to be proud or commend ourselves of anything. We're saved only on the sole grounds of Jesus' death in our place. But that, at that same time, and on the other hand, those who are saved by grace and placed on the path of righteousness will indeed perform good works that you could not even dream that you were capable of, that the Holy Spirit makes possible. And it is those good works that become the basis for varying rewards when we get to heaven. So just as hell is not the same for everyone, heaven is not the same for everyone either. I look forward to metaphorically sitting at the great wedding banquet of the church to Christ, but I have no false expectations that I'm going to be at the front of the table. And I expect to see Paul there and Lawrence Johnson. <laughs> but I'm going to be at the other end with Terry Johnson. I'm going to be happy to be there. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm going to be fully delighted. I'm not going to go, ah, I could have had Lawrence's place. I'm going to be happy for Lawrence. But my point is just that it's not the same for everyone. Again, now we think we don't like cover-ups. We want justice. We want, we want cover-ups to be exposed and judged. 
or do we? You know, I mentioned at the beginning that there's three kinds of cover-ups. Two of them are diabolical, one is divine. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden? And at the moment that they sinned, they lost the covering of righteousness. They were literally naked and afraid. They were exposed to the judgment of God. And God did judge them. But in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, the very next thing that happens is quite remarkable. Genesis 3.21 says, The Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. They were naked because of their unrighteousness, and God clothes them. He clothes them, clothes, clothes them in what? In skins. Where did he get the skins? From an innocent victim who gave up its life to cover the unrighteousness of Adam and Eve. And so you have a picture here which looks forward to, well, first it looks forward to the animal sacrifices of, throughout the Old Testament, which they themselves look forward to the perfect covering when Christ becomes the atoning sacrifice where the innocent is slaughtered that the guilty could be covered. We are those who are guilty, who are without excuse, who have no righteousness of our own. We dare not stand in the presence of God unclothed in our own unri unrighteousness. The reality is we have been covered by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. God himself has provided the greatest cover-up in all human history. We are covered with his blood, and it is only because of this divine cover-up that now Paul can say in verse 7 that we who were once derelicts apart from grace, we, verse 7, now begin to seek glory with Christ. And we have the approval of Christ in, that he bestows upon us honor. And we have this, this hope of resurrection, of, of everlasting life. We will be judged. We will stand before judgment on that, on that great day. And and the secrets of our hearts are, are revealed. Jesus warned the people of his own generation that what they did would be manifested, that there's going to be no skeletons in the closet that aren't revealed. That's why we desperately need this covering, and that's what redemption is all about. It's, it's a divine cover-up. There's nothing that we need more desperately than someone who will cover us on that day when all secrets are made manifest. Well, let's pray. Um, Jacob will be speaking next week, so we'll pick this up again in, in two weeks, and we'll continue this relentless onslaught that makes us feel so terrible when we leave. <laughs> let's pray. Father, we want to think large thoughts of you because you truly are a great God. You are so much more than our minds can comprehend and so much more than we are. And if nothing else sinks in here, let it be that we are so grateful that our sins have been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And when we stand before you and our sins are exposed and we would say, yes, I rightly own each one of those, how could I say otherwise? You are the omniscient God. My only defense at that moment will be 
the blood of Jesus Christ has covered my sins. And whatever remains, whatever works, are not consumed in that fire of judgment that become the basis of reward. Those two only are there because of your grace, the presence of your Spirit working in me. And I will be so grateful for the rewards that remain when the fire has destroyed all of the wood, hay, and straw. Father, I pray as we delve deeper and deeper into Romans, the response of our heart is not just to recognize how desperately wicked we are, but more importantly, how incredibly gracious you are. What a great God that you should love sinners like this and grant us not only forgiveness, but grant us a presence into your holy heaven. Lord, I, I pray that we would ruminate on these thoughts. I realize that these are challenging to many who have just grown up thinking that we get to heaven, it's all the same. Uh, why bother struggling to live a, a good life when there's no reason to work harder? Um, there is. And Father, I pray that we grow and mature as a church and as individuals. We ask this for the glory of your name. Amen.